Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, it's time again for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we have General David Deptula. Hey, good to be here. Sir, always great to get your perspective on these topics. We also have Todd Sledge Harmer with us. Good to be here as well. And also Anthony Laser Lazarski. Laser, welcome back. Great to join you guys again. Now, Laser and Sledge are our Washington experts who have been part of the Rendezvous crew lately. And we also have Caitlin Lee from the Mitchell team, who is our expert on UAVs and autonomy. Now, she's wrapping up a major study in this area, and you'll be hearing a lot from her on this in the coming months. So, Caitlin, welcome back to the show. Great to be here today. All right, Laser and Sledge, let's get started with you guys. Uh, the election has come and gone, and it's taken a few weeks to sort out several of the races. But the ultimate vector on the House and the Senate is pretty clear. So walk us through what happened and how you think this will shape things in 2023. Well, thanks, Slick. First of all, the dust really hasn't fully settled. I think we've got an idea of how things are going to shape out, but the balance of power in the Senate could stay at 50-50, or we may have a 51-49, depending on how the Georgia runoff election goes next Tuesday. That's important because uh, 50-50 Senate means balanced committee membership, and it, it puts more moderates like Joe Manchin or Christian Cinema in more of a position of power with a divided Senate there. So we'll see how that plays out. It looks like now the House is going to be split. The Republicans will obviously take control. Looks like they're going to have 222 seats to the Democrats, 213. So that's a nine-seat majority. That gives whoever the speaker is a very, very slim majority. It's going to be tough for whoever the speaker is, and it'll, it'll probably end up being McCarthy, although he doesn't have a guaranteed path to the speakership. It gives him a very thin majority, and it complicates the governing. I think the most noteworthy thing is we now have divided government again, which means you're not going to see a lot of the budget gimmicks reconciliation that we did in the previous Congress, and there's going to have to be more compromise to actually get legislation or meaningful legislation done. We're going to talk a little bit more, I know, about Ukraine and some of the specific legislation, so I won't mention that, but I think there's not going to be a lot of shift in priorities. China is still our pacing threat, and the government funding expires on the 16th of December. There's a lot for Congress to do between now and then, so buckle up. Yeah, just agree with everything. Again, we got two races. Both of those races that have, haven't been called are both Republican leads, so it, it looks like it's going to be 222 to 213. Again, divided government seems to work better. Every side has got a compromise, even though there had to be some compromise over the last two years. But I, I think we're going to see more of that. The problem is, is that even as we finish this election, the next election of 2024 is around the corner and you're going to start seeing some of that play into the early years. The good thing is, I, you know, and again, we've, we've got a, a president that's in his third year. We expect the budget to come in on time. We expect, even though we're seeing changes of chairs and ranking members over on the House side, they have worked together from looking at it, the defense committees. 
you know, so they have worked together. They've been very pro-defense. So even though we expect the top line budget, the numbers come in low from the president, I don't see a large change in what we're going to see, at least what the Congress is going to push for defense and at least increase top lines. However, I do see additional oversight, and I think you'll see a, a use of a lot of hearings over on the House side to highlight issues of concerns from the Republicans. But as Sledge said, I, I think we're going to, I don't think the priorities are going to change, which is good. Now, are we going to get bills done on time? I mean, we're sitting still saying, and waiting on the omnibus now and the NDAA. So I think we're going to be in for another bill uh, passage for both NDAA and the and a appropriations bill next year. All right, gents, we've talked about this a bit before, but there's major turnover on key defense committees from a leadership perspective. I mean, Senator Inhofe retiring is a major factor that will change dynamics. Uh, he's been a huge air and space power advocate, and we're really going to miss his leadership. The House is switching to Republican control, obviously, and that will change committee leadership roles. So could you guys bring us up to speed on how you see this impacting things and who are the new leaders? What are their equities and what does this mean for air and space power? So we know everybody that's coming in. So if, if look, let's look at all three officers first. So Adam Smith moves over to ranking and Mike Rogers comes up as a chair. And again, we know both real well. And from Rogers, again, he's, He's been very attuned. He's always been pushing for increased defense spending. He's been a big push on readiness and modernization efforts. As Sledge said, he's focused on China, Russia, new technology. The other thing I like is that it, there's going to be a, a how much is it going to help, but it, trying to drive shorter acquisition timeline, which we've all talked about before. And then, you know, space. Space will be a, a big focus as well as keeping supportive for Ukraine. Going on the Senate side with Senator Inhofe leaving, we're very fortunate to have Senator Wicker come on. And Senator Wicker, former JAG, Air Force, retired lieutenant colonel, another big proponent for increased defense spending. Matter of fact, he had said f- increase of 5% of the gross domestic product. Longtime proponent of NATO, support for Ukraine, um, China. Uh, you're going to see increased focus on Navy for production of destroyers and amphibious ships. He's looking at the U.S.-China competition, sort of like our Cold War and looking at just reviving American hard power. And everything, I, I, he's going to be looking at industrial base. And he, he there is very close, just like Inhofe and Reed, where Senator Wicker and Senator Reed have a very, very close relationship. So again, from an authorizer's, I, I think you're going to see a, a great team and trying to push through defense bills. On the approach side, first time, we have four women that'll be leading our probe. So we have Senator Murray and Senator Collins, and then we have Congresswoman Deloro and Granger. And that's going to be, again, they're all knowns. Granger will take over chairwoman Deloro to ranking. But, you know, with Collins and Murray and Granger and Deloro, you have a great team and a great support for defense, and they have supported increased defense spending in the past. And then what we'll have is Collins will be on the SACD with Tester, and Tester has supported the increase of defense spending. And the other nice thing is we're going to have Congressman Calvert, who will become chairman of the uh, HACD, and again, a big focus on cybersecurity, space, AI, everything that we've been concerned about about at the Mitchell Institute, I think we're going to see those priorities coming through. 
Yeah, the only thing I'd add to what Laser just said is back over on the House side, too, there's two other national security committees, I think, that are fairly important that the Republicans are going to be taking the leadership gavel on. And the first is the Intel Committee. And you've got Mike Turner from Ohio, who's uh, who's going to be the chairman, obviously a great friend to the Air Force there. He is going to be laser focused on China. And then you've got Mike McCall from Texas, who's going to be the Foreign Affairs Committee. And he has vocally come out in support of providing longer range weapons to Ukraine. So I think between those two gentlemen and uh, Mr. Rogers on the Hask, we, we've got a, a, a trio of Mikes that are defense hawks that are going to focus on China and that are going to focus on Ukraine. And and the last thing I'll say, too, about uh, Mr. Rogers, to add what Laser said, he is a huge supporter of the nuclear triad, and I think that bodes very well for the uh, modernization of that critical deterrent capability for the U.S. All right, General Deptula, let's think about 2023. What scorecard are you using when it comes to where the Air Force and the Space Force need to rock up and win some points with the 24 budget submission? I mean, I know it's it's a ways off, but February was going to be here really fast. Well, Slick, as I've said before on the rendezvous, for the past 30 years, the nation's invested less in its Air Force than in its Army and Navy. In fact, For the 20 years post 9-11, the Army received an average of $66 billion a year more than the Air Force. And as a consequence of that, the Air Force is now the oldest, smallest, and least ready it's ever been in its 75-year history. So the first thing I'll be looking for is if the Department of Defense realizes that it has to shift funding out of the other services, particularly the Army, to repair the Air Force that has literally decayed over the last 30 years. In other words, after removing the $40 billion in pass-through that goes to other DOD organizations, will the Air Force budget be larger than either the Navy or the Army? Or will it still be number four, as it is today, behind the Navy, the Army, and other DOD agencies? Second, I'll be looking for an Air Force fighter procurement rate of greater than 72 per year throughout the FIDEP, which is the minimum, the minimum required to keep the fighter force from continuing to grow in age as it has over the last 30 years. I'll be looking to see which fighter the Air Force will be sending to Kadena Air Base to permanently replace the last two F-15C squadrons that voted themselves off the island recently due to age and lack of pilots. I'll be looking to see full funding for the B-21, which we're going to see roll out the day after tomorrow, yesterday when this, <laughs> when this podcast is posted, and laying the groundwork for upping production capacity, which is absolutely critical. I'll be looking for full funding for the Sentinel ICBM. And then there's the procurement and introduction of collaborative combat aircraft at Nellis Air Force Base so the Air Force can begin learning how to capitalize on these aircraft in conjunction with inhabited aircraft. Now, this is going to require additive funding, so it'll be instructive to see just how much the Air Force is allocating for this area. Now, I won't hold my breath on this next one, but it'll also be interesting to see if the Office of the Secretary of Defense holds the Army accountable for long-range strike realities because they're hypersonic mega-missiles that cost 45 to $55 million apiece, and they're building of an organic air and space-based 
ISR complex is simply duplicative and unaffordable and actually goes against every notion of joint warfighting and as a result actually reduces combatant command capabilities and capacity. With respect to the Space Force, it needs to have resources assigned that match demand. It needs to further consolidate space functions underneath the Space Force. And it'll also be interesting to see if the Space Force is getting serious about designing, developing, and fielding offensive space operational capabilities and concepts. So that's kind of my list of what I'll be looking for on my scorecard. All right, Caitlin, General Deptula touched upon CCAs. Can you dive deeper here? What's your thinking on realistic goals for the service in fiscal year 2024? Yeah, thank you, Slick. I think it's going to be a big year for the Air Force on collaborative combat aircraft. So you've seen this idea percolating for a while across all the services that, you know, we want to bring mass back to the battle space. They're all suffering from just reduced fleets and inventories. They want to get back at capacity. And as they gear up for a great power competition, they're looking for ways to do that. And and UAVs, autonomous UAVs, are seen as a key capability to bring that mass back. And so I think, you know, just... Public statements by Air Force leaders suggest they're they're going to ask for a, a substantial chunk of funding in FY24 for collaborative combat aircraft. And just in my conversations with some air staff folks, you know, this really is a substantial amount of money. You know, in 23, the Air Force asked for just about 113 million for R&D. And, and what the air staff folks are saying is, nah, it's going to be a lot more than that. And so this is going to be a really big year. And I think the key thing for the Air Force coming into this is like really lining up your ducks. Like one of the things that I think the Navy has struggled a little bit with their unmanned systems is that you know, good idea, we're going to bring these autonomous systems online. But, you know, there's there's this need to buy down technical risk. And so they've gotten really caught up in that tension between moving fast and buying down risk. And now Congress has put a really tight leash on those Navy programs. And so I think what the Air Force can do going into this budget year and, and asking for this money for collaborative combat aircraft is really set the stage and sort of proactively say, hey, we know there's risk here. We're going to try to buy it down and manage it effectively and really get in front of it. I think that'll be really important. Okay, walk me through the autonomy front. This obviously is one of the biggest technological limpbacks. So how do you rack and stack where we are on this front? Autonomy isn't just one thing. Obviously, it involves numerous components that make up this thing as a whole. So how do you think about this? Yeah, so this is fascinating. I think the Air Force is really at this incredible moment of both challenge and opportunity with autonomy. So it's really at the frontier. So we already have some autonomy. You know, we can do automated automated takeoff and landing. The Global Hawk can fly a pre-programmed flight plan. So it's not like we don't know about autonomy, but what's really changing the game now is this introduction of artificial intelligence. And so the real question is like, how far along is AI? How sophisticated is it? How combat relevant can we make it? And so I think for the Air Force, there's really this kind of key moment where we've got to figure out how to appropriately integrate this AI and make it combat relevant. And so what you kind of hear from the Air Force right now is they want to take, and this is sort of underselling it a little, I just can't think of a better way to describe it, but a crawl, walk, run approach where you're sort of 
testing out the AI, you're iterating on it, you're, you're bringing operators into the mix with scientists and engineers to figure out what the AI can and can't do, and, and moving along aggressively, trying to go fast, that's clearly a priority, but sort of looking at a gradual adoption of AI that focuses at least initially on really tethering those, those unmanned systems to manned aircraft. And, and what that does is it, it does help you buy down that risk quickly, which is key, and the Air Force has got to do that, but it also sort of limits the number of platforms you can work with. So if I need to tether my UAV to a to a human, then I have to think about overburdening that human. And that's just sort of a necessary, you know, risk of of doing it this way, of gradually iterating. The tension there is that really when you think about operationally effective AI and, and what you want to be able to do in the battle space, some of the research that we've sort of seen here at Mitchell, but also, you know, in the in the Air Force and the, the, the gaming community is that really what you want is highly autonomous unmanned aircraft that are operating in swarms, very large numbers. And so getting to that level of like collaborative autonomy is really hard to do. And the model is different. It's putting mass, it's really putting mass, like hundreds of small, cheap UAVs into the battle space. And so the real trick for the Air Force is to figure out how to take crawl, walk, run, where you're dealing with maybe a, a handful of UAVs, more or less tethered to a human and iterating on the AI. How do you take that model, which is which sounds like it's a prudent one, and combine it, and how do you take it and actually get to this this place where you're going to have the swarm? And so I think that's the real challenge for the Air Force going forward on AI, is how to mate up those two things. Sledge and Laser, what is the Hill thinking when it comes to CCAs? Are they fans? Are, they, uh, are there key steps you think the Air Force needs to make to cement the support? I'll jump in first. I think they're big fans. And the reason why I say they're big fans is actually, if you look back after the last couple of years, they've actually put money into LCAT, into Skyboard, trying to push forward to try to get these systems out there. I think there's been frustration. We've been working these systems at least from a LCAT Skyboard for five, six years, maybe seven years. And what have we done? What have we fielded? And yet, the Chinese and the Russians but and the Iranian, I mean, they're open watching what we're doing, and Chinese are already starting to put assets out there. So, again, very supportive, and they've supported with funding in the past. I think they'll support it in the future. But the point is, is they're going to look at cost, they're going to look at capability, combat effectiveness, but we need to field these systems so that we can understand one give it to airmen let them use it let them figure out how we have to use it because if we're waiting for the 100 percent solution which all of us know and all of us listening know that that's not what we do we field you know we we need to field systems that are ready to go that have proven capabilities but i'm not waiting for the perfect solution because i don't know what that is so we need to get several systems out there we need to get them as quick as possible because the longer we delay the more we get out passed by our chinese competitors and others so uh, i think the bottom line is they're going to support the funding but we're going to have to field it and then as was just discussed we have to prove its capabilities and then expand them as we go forward there will be concern about fully autonomous capabilities, especially with lethal weapons, and that's going to, there's going to be a big discussion there. So again, you have to take steps to get up to there. If I could go back to your question, the base question there, Slick, that you asked, what are the key steps that the Air Force needs to make to cement support on the Hill? I think the big thing is do something. Stop admiring the problem and do something. 
And the thing that they can do, and this frustrated me both when I was in the Air Force and then when I was a staffer in the Senate, every year the budget came over, there was a different story, different priorities. It seemed like we just did not have a consistent message to Congress. And I think that's one of the most important things they can do. This needs to be tied to one of the Secretary's operational imperatives. And I think it certainly is, but it has to be backed by analysis. And they need to, this word is overused, they need to collaborate with Congress They need to do this jointly as they're going forward, not just say, hey, this is our plan, take it or leave it. I think China, again, is our pacing threat, and that's going to be our justification for going fast here. And to a point that uh, General Deptula made earlier as well about the Kadena F-15s. Dave Ekmanek from the Rand Corporation published an op-ed a couple days ago, and the title was, As F-15s Leave Okinawa, An Opportunity to Change Indo-Pacific Air Tactics with Unmanned Options. I think this is a perfect opportunity, and and I hope General Brown and uh, General Wilsbach are listening. I'm sure they listen to this every week. Putting unmanned aircraft, getting CCAs at Kadena to ring out some of the concept of operations here, this is your chance to accelerate change, and I would encourage you to do something bold here and go fast. I just want to jump on here, and Caitlin said it earlier, it, it's mass, all right, because what, what have we seen? We're, we're the smallest force. We're the oldest force, and we need mass costs a lot of money, and we're going to talk about B-21 here in a second. So these low-cost, these collaborative combat aircraft are, enable us to have mass to do this capability to make the targeting solution tough for our adversaries, specifically China. So that's going to be key, and we need, and I agree with everything that Sledge just said, but working with Congress, but we do have to field these systems. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We I love the Ackmanic idea. Get those things out in the field. Get them in the hands of operators and operational settings. Play with them. See how they take off and land. And definitely, sludge to your point about Congress, have an unclassified conversation that's out in the open that the American public can hear about why we need these things to keep ahead and, and build our combat credible force for you know this this China threat. All right, General Deptula, B-21 is set to be unveiled this week, and by the time we release this episode, the public will have seen it. In fact, you're attending the rollout, so thoughts on the program? Yeah, the B-21 rollout comes at a time that the nation desperately needs long-range strike capability and capacity to make its defense strategy a reality. Of all the weapon systems in the U.S. defense inventory, B-21 is the most relevant to deterring and, if necessary, defeating what the department has identified as America's pacing threat, and that's China. Specifically, the B-21's custom-made for dealing with the challenges posed by the China threat. It's got the ability to rapidly conquer the tyranny of distance posed by the vastness of the Pacific Ocean and then survive when it gets to contested battle space. The new B-21 is essential to the successful implementation of the strategies and operational concepts that are currently being developed to allow the U.S. military to project power in the face of China's anti-access aerial denial challenges. And it constitutes the foundation of a credible and effective capability to hold any target on the planet at risk and if necessary, to destroy them promptly. So this global strike capability is simply indispensable for deterrence and crisis management and is a fundamental pillar of U.S. military power. All that said, 
along with the rest of the Air Force, the bomber force is currently the oldest and the smallest it's ever been in its history. At a time that demand is through the roof, and this risk is simply unsustainable. Well, it might be sustainable, but it's not wise if we want to deter and defend in the future. Today, the stated overall Air Force bomber objective is 225 aircraft. Now, that includes ultimately a mix of just B-21s and B-52s, the youngest of which is over 60 years old. And while larger than the existing bomber inventory, this plan takes far too long to reach that 225 bomber goal, not getting there until sometime in the 2040s. <laughs> I'm not used to doing math in public, but that's over 20 years in the future. And this leaves the nation badly exposed with a dearth of long-range strike capacity for nearly two decades. Now, production capacity and resources necessary to maximize this potential need to increase because these aircraft can't be produced in the quantity necessary with the flip of a switch. So we need to rapidly rebuild our bomber arsenal. Otherwise, it's going to be too late when the next crisis emerges. And so I, what I would tell you is, is pending how it works after it's flying, it goes through its test program. If all that pans out well, as is anticipated, because it's an excellently performing program, the Air Force needs to plan on buying at a minimum of 180 B-21s. They don't have to make that decision now, but they need to be thinking about it to produce and have available the production capacity to do so. And Sledge Laser, what are your thoughts? Yes, look, I would say the acquisition objective quantity needs to be a floor, not a ceiling, that more is better. I'd sent out the release of the rollout to a bunch of friends, and I got a couple emails back about a $2 billion aircraft, and how can we afford that? And I said that was estimated at 100. And again, if you only build 100 or then you go to 200 or 500, all of a sudden your costs start coming down. We cannot build another F-22 B-2 force. We need a larger system and we need to field it quicker. And I would say to General Deptula, there isn't anybody on the Hill that would disagree that we need to go ahead and field these quicker. But you're right, we just can't turn a switch on and all of a sudden we've doubled the capacity of our line. So we have to build the industrial base. And again, that's something Congress is very focused on. I think you see, as we said about this before, a lot of support, but the key thing will be keeping it on time and on budget as it goes forward and then proving capabilities. And then you're gonna have Congress 100% behind you. And one of the other things we talked about is, you know, retiring assets before we replace assets. And we can't be retiring assets before we start replacing them with these B-21s. And that's gonna be another key because there is concern that we're giving away too much capability. All right, now, I know we talk about this all the time, but what are your latest thoughts on Ukraine? General Deptula, let's get started with you. I think you released an op-ed this week on this front. Yeah, I did, and I commend it to uh, all our listenership. The reality is that Ukraine needs to reset its entire Air Force to win this war. Now, this is going to demand training personnel, constructing the necessary infrastructure, and then providing the combat aircraft and associated munitions necessary to replace the Soviet-era aircraft that Ukraine currently possesses. Deferring this process 
of transforming the Ukrainian Air Force to one based on Western combat aircraft will simply undermine the Ukrainians while empowering Putin. If you take a look at the map showing the relative position of Ukrainian and Russian forces, it clearly shows that there's still a long way to go in this fight. Accelerating that clock by providing an advantage in combat aircraft to better arm and exploit the air domain is absolutely essential for Ukraine to secure victory. It will dial up the pressure on Putin. It'll stop the suffering of the Ukrainian people and ease the economic disruption the rest of the world's experiencing because of this conflict. And now the U.S. holds the power to positively shape the outcome. And that's why there's bipartisan support in Congress, and you don't see that very often today, to supply the Gray Eagle or MQ-1 to Ukraine. But the Biden administration is opposed. They've cited concerns regarding the potential of further escalating the war, that it's too costly, and the high probability that they may get shot down. But what the administration needs to consider are the losses that will occur and the broader strategic interests at risk by failing to better equip the Ukrainians with more effective air power. So the question really needs to focus on the results that the MQ-1Cs will secure versus failing to try at all. The former turns up the pressure on the Russians. The latter seeds them battlefield sanctuary. So let's get on with it and provide Ukraine the air power it needs to win. And Caitlin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and just to build on what General Deptula said, you know, the other thing is Russia's got its own drones. It's got all these Shahed, these Iranian Shahed drones that it's just lobbying at all kinds of civilian infrastructure in Ukraine as we come up on winter and start worrying about the electric grid and things like that. And so another kind of interesting twist on this, I saw an article yesterday sort of suggesting that that our drones, Gray Eagle and Reaper, could actually play a role in, in the counter drone fight. You know, put some EW pods on the Gray Eagle, even put some of the more, there's some newer Hellfire missiles now that you can use for air to air that go longer ranges. Try shooting down some, try shooting down some of these Shaheds with, with Gray Eagles and Reapers. You know, we tried to put air to air missiles on the, the Predator, I think, 20 years ago, but I hope the technology's moved since then. And I, I think that's worth doing. If, you know, Hellfire is $150 a copy. So there's things that we can, creative things we can do to go get after these problems. And we can use these, our drones, Gray Eagle and Reaper, in ways that can provide both offensive and defensive capability. Offensive side, go after counter battery fires, go after their drone launch sites, particularly in the Donbass, Crimea. And then defensively, kind of support the NASAMs and the air defense over there with, with some air-to-air capability against the Shaheds. So lots to consider, lots of value in that. Sledge Laser, where's the hill tracking on continued U.S. support for Ukraine? I think you're going to find that the continued support for Ukraine is there, regardless of, of how it plays out in Congress here. I mean, by the end of this year, you can expect another $38 billion for Ukrainian aid included in whatever the supplemental, as a supplemental to the, either the omnibus or another continuing resolution. And that brings the total to about $100 billion, which is not insignificant. And that that's, you know, that $100 billion is split between direct support to Ukraine humanitarian assistance, and then presidential drawdown authority. But the one thing I, I think it's kind of taken out of context is you hear a lot in the, as the Republicans take over the House, you see a lot in the press about there's not going to be a blank check with support to Ukraine. I, I don't see that as a an area of major concern. What I do think you can expect out of the House next year is additional oversight, and that's the amount of money that's spent, where that money is going, and how it's being used that's what defines the blank check. But I also think the key thing that you're going to see out of a Congress in the 118th is 
more of a desire to determine what's our strategy? What's the end game look like? What is victory for Ukraine and is the United States rather willing to support that definition of victory? But at the end of the day, I think you're going to see some time of long-term commitment from the United States and the, uh, the Western European countries that bring Ukraine closer to the Western orbit. Just following on with Sledge, there will be additional oversight, but it's not due to a, a lack of support for Ukraine. Matter of fact, all the chairs and ranking members of our defense committees fully support what we're doing out there. To get into the strategy, Russian strategy is the bottom line is they're going to continue to attack all infrastructure, all civilian targets, because their whole point is to break the resolve of the Ukrainian people and to break the support of the West. And, and that's what we're seeing. That's what they're trying to do. Matter of fact, as you're seeing, they're taking out all the power so they can start freezing everyone out there as, as winter comes. And But I do not see that is going to be effective, and I don't see Western support. You know, we've seen uh, NATO um, just come out and fully support and give additional generators as well as weapons and ammunition. So, uh, again, continued support in the Congress. The one thing, though, is there's concern from a congressional point of view, of, as Sledge said, we're giving more equipment, but we're depleting our reserves, our capabilities. And so you're going to see Congress focused on, again, that industrial base and building up the capabilities, the stores, the munitions that we are actually sending forward. And when it comes to increased capability of weapon systems, surveillance, or what it is, new technologies, the Ukrainians have proven themselves capable to, of doing it. But there is still a concern about this transfer of more sensitive components, uh, sensitive uh, surveillance systems as we move forward. So we're going to have to get past that. I think that we may be able to. There's congressional support to give do that, we're still getting some pushback from the Biden administration. And the last thing, when we talk about General Deptula, it talked about being involved. I mean, NATO is completely involved. The U.S. is completely involved in Ukraine, as is Russia. So, again, putting these additional weapons capabilities, giving them to the Ukrainians that have proven capable of using them, I, I don't think changes anything except it gives them the advantage and enables them to get Russia out of their country. All right, team, as always, we're getting tight on time, but last question, sledge and laser, what's left to get the defense bills across the line? We've talked a lot about what's up for next year, but there's clearly work to be done to wrap things up this year. Are we going to see bills pass in 2022? House leaders have obviously been talking about rolling things into 2023. Sledge, you want to start on this one? Or would you like me? Go ahead. All right, so we'll start on the defense authorization bill. The bill is essentially put together. There are, let's just say, roughly a dozen issues that are mostly outside the jurisdiction of the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, and they're sitting up at leadership, House and, and Senate leadership. These, If you looked at the roughly the NDAA, the Ask and SASPA was about, let's say, 800 pages, and we added another 2,000 on there with all these other authorization bills. None of these bills will be included in the final defense authorization bill when it gets passed, unless there's agreement between House and Senate Republican and Democrats, because they don't want any language, any issues in that bill that could undermine the entire NDAA from getting passed. So those are being worked up at leadership. The plan is, is to try to get that bill buttoned up, hopefully by today, 
and then do a page turn by the end of this week. And then the plan would be to try to bring it to the floor on the House side, file it maybe Friday, but I think probably more likely Monday next week, and then bring it to the House floor the week of the 5th, and then the Senate floor the week of the 12th. And then that will be final passage, and that's done on the NDAA. On the approach bills, it's a little more difficult because they hadn't been talking. The Democrat, both House and Senate Democrats, appropriators have been putting together, uh, you know, what they think their bill is. They've been direct and specifically from Hackty and Sacti to try to build a bill that appropriations bill that would be supported and takes in Republican priorities. However, until, and they just had a meeting with the White House yesterday, leadership and our top appropriators in the House and Senate, and they are scheduled to have a meeting today. They may have already had it um, to, so they can start working it. The, the big issue is the top line and what we're hearing is the top line will likely be what we've seen in the Senate, which is about $45 billion increase, although we've heard that that could be a floor, not a ceiling. But again, we're looking around $45 billion increase for defense, but that's what they're going to have to work out. And as soon as they can get an agreement on the top line, then the subcommittees can get everything done and then work it as quick as they can. Can they get it done You know, by the 16th, which is when the CR uh, ends? No, there's going to be another CR. The Democrats are already working that. That CR goes to the 23rd. And then can we get it done by the 23rd? There's hope, but they're really going to have to get down as soon as they can really agree on a top line and let the staffers start working this. Again, there's some there's optimism that they can get this done. People do want to get this done. There are individuals, both House and Senate side, Republican Democrats, that are upset at portions of the bill. Some members want to push a CR until next year and try to get things done next year, but then that builds up on what Congress has to get done next year, and it's a new Congress. So I think people are still optimistic optimistic uh, that we will try to get the appropriations bills done by the 23rd. And I'm, I'm one of those that are optimistic that we'll get both the authorization and the appropriations bill done. I think the, the comment about kicking everything to next year was, I, I think that was some posturing on the part of Congressman McCarthy to secure some of the Freedom Caucus votes. I hate to say it was an idle threat, but I, I think that was it was more political posturing than anything else. There's really too many must-have reauthorizations in the NDAA and the impact of a long-term CR is just, I mean, I mean, it's so consequential to the U.S. government and the Department of Defense that the adults in the room will figure out sometime before now on the start of the 118th Congress, we need to clear the deck, pass an omnibus, get the NDAA across, and raise the debt limit so we can start next January with a clean sheet of paper and move on to FY24. And I, I, I'm going to throw there, you're going to, I'm sure listeners will hear about debt limit. The debt limit is not, you know, the cap, at least that's reaching the cap of the debt limit that's established right now. They do not believe we'll reach that until September, October of next year. Um, there is discussions right now whether or not they increase that cap in this omnibus. Right now, I would say that is not going to happen, but that is part of the negotiations and, and it's going to have to occur with decrease in the non-defense and defense spending and how we, you know, how we handle our obligations. But right now, it looks like this is going to have to be something that Congress tackles next year. All right, everybody, thank you so much for your time today. That's all we have time for. General Deptula, Laser, Sledge, and Caitlin, it's been awesome catching up with you. Okay, have a great aerospace power kind of day. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks a lot. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. 
If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.